people are being given the wrong advice about guidelines versus rules. It's good advice. It's just that it's really hard to follow. The biggest problem with it is that your pig is telling you that it's going to be just as easy to start tomorrow, but it's not. If you have a craving and you indulge the craving, that craving will be stronger tomorrow. Food addiction seems to be an overactivation of the feast and famine response or the fight and flight response. I think food addiction is not an addiction to any particular substance. The real addiction in food addiction is the addiction to impulsive decision-making and emotional eating. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, the holidays are upon us. I specifically planned this episode way in advance, way in advance, because my initial episode with Dr. Glenn Livingston was so popular. I knew it was time to do a special listener Q&A with him right around the holidays when all of those parties involving food and all the things might be happening. I thought this episode might be super helpful for you guys, so please, please enjoy. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash never binge again questions. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Also, Black Friday is quickly approaching. Make sure you get on my email list because I will be emailing a list with all the things, all the deals. You can get on that at melanieavalon.com slash email list. Speaking of, I do have two really amazing deals you don't want to miss from brands you guys know I love. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Glenn Livingston. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited and even more so honored for the conversation that I am about to have. So backstory on it. I myself, and I know a lot of my audience oftentimes struggle with things like food cravings and overeating and food fears and binging. And there's just a lot of stress surrounding food, especially now. I'm probably going to release this around the holidays, especially now. It can be a lot to deal with. And I'm a rules type of person. And things like intuitive eating and stuff like that never really seemed to work for me. And then around, I think it was around 2017, I was very intrigued by a book I saw on Amazon called Never Binge Again. It had thousands of reviews between four and five stars. Today, I just looked it up and today it has over 7,000 reviews, which is honestly just kind of shocking, (laughs) but for good reason. And I read this book and friends, it was so life-changing. It really, really is a paradigm shift in 
reframing your perspective towards food and finally becoming free from the little voice in your head that might keep you in patterns that you don't want to be in with food. So I read that book. I would recommend it all the time on the intermittent fasting podcast. And we talked about this on the last episode that I had this guest on. It's called Never Binge Again, but really what you learn in it can be applied to I mean, overeating in general and so many other things in life that it's just so valuable. I was recommending it all the time. I made it my mission to try and get the author onto this show. So when he agreed to come on, I think I aired it. I aired it. I don't know when we recorded the first time, but when he agreed, I was so excited. Six months ago. Yeah. Six months ago. Okay. Oh yeah. Because it was around the beginning of the whole quarantine situation, I think. So when he agreed to come on, The conversation was amazing. It was magical. You guys loved it. The second I recorded it, I knew that I had to bring him back ASAP for a second episode. And I've also gotten to know him as a friend and he's just an incredible human being. So I am here with Dr. Glenn Livingston and Glenn, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thank you so much. It's my honor. Well, first of all, I will refer listeners to the first episode that we did together because you you dive deep into your personal story of what brought you to to write Never Binge Again and all of that. So if listeners want like the really deep dive into that, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. That said, I will tell listeners a little bit about you for those who are not familiar. So Glenn Livingston, he is a PhD, a veteran psychologist, and he was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which serviced many Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. And he talks about this in his books, but I think it really, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems that it really gave you a really good perspective of how things like advertising and our modern food system can really hijack us. From when, from when I was on the wrong side of the war. But yes, it did. It's a nice background that you have because it gives you that whole perspective. But since then, you took a turn. (laughs) You no longer work with that company. And so would you like to tell listeners briefly a little bit of how you did come to write Never Binge Again and what was the, the epiphany that you had surrounding how we can view our food struggles? Melanie, have you ever been to Long Island? If you were in Long Island and you passed by the... Woodbury Country Deli, and you found that they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts or muffins, the odds are that I got there before you. And the reason I'm saying that, which is kind of a joke, but not really, is that I want your listeners to know I'm not just a doctor that decided to work with overeaters, but I, I had a serious problem myself. And I used to, used to weigh almost 280 pounds. My top visit on the scale was about 257, but I just stopped weighing myself for a long time after that. And so my best guess is about 280. And my triglycerides were over 1,000. And the doctors were saying I was going to die. And, you know, it, it was very bothersome to me because more so than the weight. I'm, I'm 6'4". I'm modestly muscular, so it didn't look awful. It didn't look great, but it didn't look awful. What was more bothersome to me was the inability to be present and, you know, connected to people. Because I've, I've always considered myself a psychologist first and foremost. I grew up in a family of 17 therapists. And literally my mom and my dad and my cousins and my uncles and my aunts. And sometimes even the dog would ask you how you're feeling. I felt wrong. I felt like I'd be sitting with couples right after they had an affair trying to save the marriage. And I'd be thinking about how do you 
you know, how can I get to the deli and get, get, get a whole tray of food and dislodge my jar and empty it into it? Or when am I going to get a whole pizza? When can I get some Dunkin' Donuts? And the constant obsession with food was bothering me more even than the weight. I'll fast forward through a lot of the story, but I went on the assumption that there must be a hole in my heart. And if there was, I could fill the hole in my heart that maybe I wouldn't fill, maybe I wouldn't need to fill the hole in my stomach so badly. And, you know, I went to the best doctors and took medication and I went to Overs Anonymous and ran a big study trying to understand the relationship between emotions and overeating. And eventually I ran across a couple of things that flipped my paradigm to be more like an alpha wolf. That This was the epiphany that I needed to be more like an alpha wolf dealing with, with a challenger for leadership, more so than a you know, guy who was nurturing his inner wounded child back to health. And the three things that got me to that real quick were, one, that I discovered the neurology of food addiction doesn't really involve the centers of the brain that know love. The food addiction seems to be an overactivation of the feast and famine response, and that's, and, or the fight and flight response. But part of the reptilian brain, part of the lizard brain, and that's the part that looks at something in the environment and says, do I eat it? Do I meet with it or do I kill it? It's the part that says just over, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. It feels like a survival need and it doesn't know love. It's, it's the higher brain that says before you eat me, eat me or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have in your loved ones and your tribe and for that matter, what impact is it going to have on your long-term goals and your spirituality and your music and your art and your contribution to society and the kind of person you're trying to become? So all this stuff that I'd studied in psychology and the 30 years of deep diving that I was very soulful, I went through all the, all the psychotherapy you can imagine, all of that made me a better person in a lot of ways, it was very rich and spiritual, but it didn't help me to stop overeating. And like you said, I was also working with the big food companies and saw that they were spending billions of dollars to engineer concentrated forms of hyperpalatable poison, basically. It's starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt, and, and that it was all designed to hit our bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. I looked at animal studies to see what happens if you short-circuit the pleasure systems like that. It turns out that you know, if you wire a, an electrode, I don't think anybody's wiring electrodes to our brains, but if you do wire an electrode to a mammal's brain in the pleasure center and you let them press the lever to, st- to self-stimulate, they, they'll do it thousands of times a day at, to the exclusion of all their survival needs. You know, nursing mother rats will abandon their pups and press the lever thousands of times a day. Rats will crawl over painful electrical grades to press the lever thousands of times a day. It's very, very, very strong when you can short circuit the pleasure mechanisms and nobody's kidnapping us and planting electrodes in our brains, but you know, walk outside of the McDonald's in any city in the country. And there's usually a Burger King across the street in some corner and there are bags and boxes and containers on every street corner. And you know, every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, there's, some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank. And it's, we're overstimulated. We're overstimulated with food pleasure, which nature didn't prepare us to handle. And the result is that our survival drive shifts towards these bags and boxes and containers 
rather than what nature has to offer. And whether you believe that, you know, we're supposed to, most people believe we're supposed to be having whole natural foods, right? Some people believe that that's lean animal proteins and vegetables. Other people believe it's, you know, fruit and vegetables. There's some other variations of that. But basically people, when they, when you look at the evidence, they say we're supposed to be having whole natural foods. We're not really supposed to be eating all these bags and boxes and containers. I mean, there's no doctor in the world that's going to diagnose you with a potato chip deficiency. And, you know, I looked, I looked at that and I said, well, that's an external force. It has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or that I was in a bad marriage. I looked at the advertising industry and how they were convincing us that we needed these things to survive. Like this food bar manufacturer that takes the vitamins out of the bar because it was too expensive and it made it taste bad. And they put the money into the packaging instead to fake us out and make it look vibrant and healthy and multicolored, like, like it has a diversity of nutrients. I saw that going on all across the industry. And then, you know, I did this big study and I figured out that there were some associations with, you know, for example, people that eat chocolate like me, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. So I went through all of this and eventually I realized the food addiction is a separate issue. It's a separate issue. Yes, there are reasons people choose food as their drug of choice, but once the habit is set up, it's really just a bad habit. And it has a very powerful self-sustaining nature and it has a life of its own. Once you've established the bad patterns, it really has a life of its own. And, you know, you could talk about your mom until you're blue in the face and that's not necessarily going to help you to overcome the food addiction, it might insulate you from the feelings for a little while, but it's not going to help you to over, overcome the food addiction. And so what I did was I decided that, Melanie, you have to understand this was a private thing. I, I was not planning to be a public figure about this. I had no idea what was going to happen with the book at that time. I wasn't even going to write a book. I was just, I'd failed writing another health book before because I was really off base. And so I was just writing internally in my journal to try to figure this out for myself. And it's a little embarrassing, but I decided that I had a pig inside me. I decided that my lizard brain, food addiction, was going to be my inner pig. And I would make very hard and fast rules that would clearly distinguish between healthy and unhealthy behavior. Like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I heard a voice in my head that said it was just as easy to start to start my diet tomorrow and I wasn't going to gain any weight and I could have some chocolate because I worked out hard enough, I'd say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. Chocolate is pig slop on a weekday. I never eat chocolate on a weekday. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, I know the reasons it works, but as ridiculous as it sounds and as crude and primitive as it sounds, that's, that's what gave me the extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right choice if I wanted to. And it wasn't a miracle. I can't say I totally recovered with that insight. But what that insight did for me was it eradicated any sense of powerlessness and confusion. I then really knew that I was in control and I could choose what to eat. Maybe sometimes I made the wrong choice, but I knew that I was choosing. And then I looked at more research in the industry and I realized that people are being given the wrong advice about guidelines versus rules. You know, people are told to follow a guideline. Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. 
eat well 90% of the time, indulge 10% of the time. And it's not that that's wrong. It's good advice. It's just that it's really hard to follow because every time you're in Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, for example, you have to ask yourself, is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? And it turns out that willpower is largely a fatigable muscle. It's not like a genetic gift. It's more like gas in the tank. And every time you're making decisions, even non-food decisions, you're burning more willpower. There are only so many good decisions we can make every day. And guidelines wear down your willpower because they require too many decisions. On the other hand, if I wanted to accomplish the same thing, like let's say I wanted to have chocolate 90% of the time, that's a slip. <laughs> if I wanted to have chocolate 10% of the time and avoid it 90% of the time, I could say something like, I'll only ever have chocolate on the last three days of the calendar month. But still, 90% of the time that I'm not having it, I'm not giving it up totally, but my chocolate decisions are made for me all month long and I don't have to walk around wearing down my willpower. I'm much more likely to succeed and I can use my willpower for more important things. So that's what I did. I kept a journal for eight years about all the things that my pig would say and why it was wrong. And I also figured out that I had to figure out what the authentic need was. So it wasn't just that I had to stop eating chocolate, but I had to and I started having some banana kale smoothies to give myself the energy and chlorophyll that I needed. And that what I find is that I wouldn't get a high the same way I did when I had chocolate. It's like, you know, I think chocolate's a very unnatural concentration of pleasurable substances. I'm not saying it's bad. Some people can do fine with that, but it's definitely unnatural. I was looking for energy and some calories. And so for me personally, I did a lot of experimentation and I came up with a kale banana smoothie and that's what would kill the craving. It wouldn't be delicious the way chocolate was, but I wouldn't be bothered or tortured with the craving anymore and I could go on with my day. And slowly but surely over the course of eight years, I disempowered all the crazy things that my pig would say. And as I was getting divorced in 2015, my, the CEO in a publishing company that I was a minor partner in said, hey, could you write a book? We need to do some experimentation with the book. We need our own authors to do that. And then we can attract better authors. And so I wrote the book and we launched it and it just absolutely took off. And so now when I'm in a bookstore, once in a while, people come up to me and they don't know my name, but they've seen me on a video or something and they point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. <laughs> That's my story. That's what happened. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I was more detailed than I meant to be. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It was great. You're like the interview that does itself. You touched on so many things that I'd wanted to talk about. So that was so incredibly valuable. And a lot of people see things like, especially if they're completely new to this whole concept that you just put forth, it can seem restrictive or it can seem like like rules would be a bad thing because they you know, encourage maybe too much of a a restrictive or an obsessive mentality, but at least for me and clearly tons of people who have implemented this, it's ultimately extremely freeing because like you said, it, it gets rid of decision fatigue. It gets rid of the whole, the nebulous waters that just slowly drain you down, like, like Chinese water torture of not just having your, your clear rules of what you're doing in the given moment. So for this episode, I reread 
I think it's probably my third time reading it, 45 Binge Trigger Busters, because for listeners, so Glenn has Never Binge Again, but then he has a whole series of other books that dive into more specific topics. And one of them is 45 Binge Trigger Busters. So I thought it would be really fun and exciting to go through some of those specific things that people deal with. And I reached out to my audience in my Facebook group, I have Biohackers, and asked for questions for you specifically involving what do people struggle with, with overeating or binging? Like what are your triggers? What situations, what environments? And I got so many questions for you. Let's do it. Can I say something about the restriction first? Because it's kind of important. Yes, please do. It's possible to use this to over-restrict. And I don't want you to do that. It's possible to use rules to over-restrict in the same way that it's possible to use a kitchen knife to hurt someone. The purpose of Never Binge Again is to be articulate and descript about where your personal food bullseye is. The way to lose weight, in my estimation, and I'm not a doctor or a licensed dietitian or anything like that, but I think we should be flooding our, our body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. I think there's a mechanism in the brain that says if I live in an environment where food is occasionally very scarce for long periods of time, like if you dramatically lower your calories and you know, if you restrict, then when food becomes available, I think there's this evolutionary mechanism that says we better hoard it. We better hoard it because you never know when it's going to be restricted again. And so when people are addicted to overeating, they're not just addicted to overeating, they're addicted to the feast and famine cycle. And what I want people to do is to step out of the feast and famine cycle and keep reliable nutrition coursing through their bodies. And if they need to lose weight, do it slowly at a pound or two per week. So the insight of Never Binge Again is to be descript and articulate and know exactly what the boundaries of your personal bullseye are so that when you miss it, you know by how much and in what direction and what adjustments you need to make. It's not to use rules to create a bunch of Nazi food policemen that are standing over you and making it impossible for you to nutrify your body and eventually you're going to rebel against that and binge. That's a very important insight and I do have to be sure that people aren't using this the wrong way. So that's it, Melanie. Thank you. I'm so glad you clarified that. And actually, because that's something, especially having being the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, which in a way you could argue is based on the feast and famine cycle, like that lifestyle. With that approach, it is so key that when people are having their eating window, that they're not over-restricting and not living in a perpetual state of restriction, which can so easily happen. I just thought about that, like with the comparison here. With binge eaters, I find that if they start with smaller windows and they expand the windows after a couple of months, they do much better than if they start with a really large, really um, smaller fasting. Yeah. 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 I also could not agree more with, I don't know if you said I'm paraphrasing, but something about like the ideal diet being, you know, nutrient replete at like a slight calorie deficit. I just wanted to agree there. So um, good. I like when you agree with me, but it's okay if you disagree with me too. No, but I do. That's like what I think. In any case, so revisiting the 45 binge trigger busters, so many things I want to touch on. You've worked and practiced with, you know, hundreds, thousands of people. Thousands at this point. Yeah. 
And one of the fascinating things to me was you said that, you know, you've worked with thousands of people and people, you know, will think that they're unique. Like they have this one thing they struggle with that nobody else struggles with. But you said there's really only around 50 or so triggers or what you call pig squeals. So excuses that the pig gives you for reasons to break your plan that you kept seeing over and over. I just found that so interesting. And in the book, 45 Binge Trigger Busters, you go through 45 very specific ones. Before I go into the, like, the specific questions from listeners, what do you think are like the top like five? Like Which ones do you hear the most? You can just start tomorrow. Today's almost over. You already blew it. You can just start tomorrow. And there are a lot of variations of that, but basically that's the, <laughs> that's the biggest one. Here's the problem. They're, they're actually about 13 problems with that. I'll tell you the biggest ones. The biggest problem with it is that your pig is telling you that it's going to be just as easy to start tomorrow, but it's not. The principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. That means that if you have a craving and you indulge the craving, that craving will be stronger tomorrow, as will the connection between the craving and the indulgence. So you're always either reinforcing or extinguishing your addictions. We can only use the present moment to be healthy. And we have to always use the present moment to be healthy. The other big problem with the I'll start tomorrow squeal is that two more big problems. One of them is that when you have the thought, I will start tomorrow, it's just as easy to start tomorrow, let's start tomorrow. And then you have something highly palatable or pleasurable, you're actually reinforcing the thought itself. So that means tomorrow, you're more likely to have the thought, I'll start tomorrow, tomorrow, than you did today. So you're building up a thinking pattern in addition to building up a binging pattern. And the last big reason I will tell you is that all of the research suggests that saying, I'll start tomorrow, doesn't really mean anything because there is no real tomorrow. All there really is, is now. And I mean, it, there will be a tomorrow, but it's going to be now again tomorrow. When you say, I will start tomorrow, your lizard brain doesn't understand tomorrow. It understands today. And so what you're really telling your lizard brain is, when you say, I'll start tomorrow, it just means we're not going to do it today. It just means we're going to eat badly today. That's all it means. So you haven't really decided anything about tomorrow. You're just fooling yourself that you're going to do something tomorrow. You've just decided something about today. The only time you can make a decision is, is right now. And that's why you always have to use the present moment to be healthy. Does it make sense? Yeah, it's so sneaky. What you just said about, you know, by engaging in that pattern of I'll start tomorrow, you're more likely to do that again. That's very distressing, but it's really empowering. What's another one? What about just one more bite? <laughs> yeah, just one, just one more bite. Or just one bite, just one bite, that one too. Well, the same principles of learning and reinforcement hold. So when you say just one bite and then you get pleasure from that bite, you've reinforced the thought that you can have just one more bite. So you're actually more likely to have another thought that says just one more bite and then just one more bite. And then you get a case of the efforts. Which is the worst. <laughs> yes. One bite is a tragedy. One bite off your plan is, is very often a tragedy. I want to underscore that just because you take one bite doesn't mean you have to have more. In the same way that 
just because you accidentally chip a tooth, you don't have to go get a hammer to bang the rest of them out. You know, every bite counts. Every last bite counts, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. And even if you're midway through a binge and you wake up and you remember this, five cupcakes is better than 15. Binging for an hour is better, better than binging for a day. Binging for a day is better than binging for a week. You always want to, as soon as you wake up, get right back on track. If you, if you miss the bullseye, stand up and aim again. Figure out what went wrong, adjust your, adjust your aim, and then stand up and aim again. So you can always get off the train. You can always get off the train. I mean, there are a couple of things you can do to make it easier because when you're on the train, you've allowed your lower brain to take control and it feels like an emergency. You've, you've revved up, your sympathetic nervous system is revved up, it's preparing for action. It thinks that these are scarce resources and they're not going to be there later. So what you want to do is take yourself out of that sympathetic or emergency action nervous system and you could get yourself to take a breath breathe in for seven breathe out for 11 it's called the 7 breath i got it from Lori hammond and the reason that works is that if we're in an environment where there's time to breathe out longer than there is to breathe in then we're probably not in an emergency environment. Like if you were running away from a, a hungry tiger, you would be running. You wouldn't have time to breathe out for four more counts than you can breathe in for. So you're signaling your body that there's no hungry tiger chasing you. And there's a calmness that comes upon you, which is the activation of your parasympathetic nervous system or moving from your lower brain to your upper brain. And you can do that. You can carry around something to write with. And you can write down what your pig is saying right there and then. Because writing, you're not only inserting in delay between impulse and action, but writing is an upper brain activity and binging is a lower brain activity. Then you can challenge what it says. You can ask yourself, where's the lie and what it's saying? There's usually a half a truth and a bigger lie. Ask it where the lie is and then write that down. And then ask yourself, if you're genuinely hungry for something, what does your body authentically need? And ask yourself how it would make you a happier, better person to follow your rules and aim at the target again. If you, I, I know that sounds like a bunch, and people might be saying, well, I just won't feel like doing that at the moment. But you can teach yourself to feel like doing that at the moment. And you can teach yourself to do it even when you don't feel like doing it. And it makes all the difference in the world. I really love what you just said about there's usually like a little bit of a truth and a bigger lie. So like when we're experiencing some sort of voice in our head <laughs> telling us to eat whatever it is that's off plan, because I think there's often a, a tendency to just want to like reason with that voice and either reason your way into it or out of it. So like, what does that look like practically? If you're wanting to have this chocolate off plan at this moment and you're like thinking about it. So if you come up with reasons for why you should compared to why you shouldn't, like, what does that dialogue look like in your head with the pig? Okay. First, I want to give credit to Jack Trimpey for helping me understand a lot about the way that this works. He works with alcoholics, and he's written a book called Rational Recovery. And I learned an awful lot about that, the addictive dialogue from his book. Mine is different. There are a lot of differences between what he does and what I do, but there are a lot of similarities, too. Anyway, the idea... Kind of go back to the semantic definition of the pig. A pig squeal 
is any thought, feeling, impulse, or image that suggests that you're going to break your plan either now or in the future until the day that you die. The pig is that entity, that fictitious entity that contains and organize all of your dis- organizes all of your destructive thoughts. By definition, this is it's not a cute pet. These are the thoughts that want you to self-sabotage. So knowing that, if you immediately recognize that this is a pig squeal and you're capable of ignoring it, you can just ignore it. You don't have to go through these logical machinations to identify the false logic and disempower it. The problem is because most squeals contain a half a truth and a bigger lie, that the truth is very seductive for people and they really do need to examine it so that they'll recognize it next time so that the evidence is obvious that this is the pig and it's not their own thoughts. So for example, my pig says, you worked out hard today. You can get away with a little chocolate, even though it's a weekday, you can just start again tomorrow. You're not going to gain any weight. So there are elements of truth in that. You know, if I, if I ran five miles and I have, you know, two or three ounces of chocolate, I probably won't gain any weight. There's really ostensibly nothing wrong with that, as long as it was just two or three pieces of chocolate. So it's true that I won't gain any, gain any weight, and it's true that I worked out hard. So I can admit that. I can admit that those things are true. What's not true is that I'll be likely to stop at one or two squares of chocolate. My sister is one of those people that can take out a bar of chocolate from her purse and take one or two squares out and take like a half an hour to eat them and say, I'm going to fold up the rest for later. And I always wanted to kill her. I don't know how she does that. I don't know how people do that with anything. <laughs> yep. Right? Like, like, what's the point if I can't have six bars? That's, that's, that's more like how I am. But I'm not someone who can do that. And so it's not going to be just two squares. It's not going to be just a little bit. And I probably will gain weight if I have six bars. The other part that's not true when, when it says there's no harm in it, because food addiction, this is a Glenn Livingston theory. I can't totally prove this, but I really believe it. I think food addiction is not an addiction to any particular substance. You know, I, I do think sugar, salt, excess fat, oil, starch, I, I think they are hyper palatable and they they play a role in the addiction, but I think the real addiction in food addiction is the addiction to impulsive decision-making and emotional eating. I think that's the real addiction. And so if I made a plan, if I made an intellectual plan, I made a rule to follow, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I did that when I was of sound mind and body and I had the intellect and fortitude to figure out what was best for me. If I break that plan by even a little bit, I'm reinforcing my addiction to impulsive eating and emotional eating. And I want to instead be someone who commits to ordered and planned eating around my most dangerous food triggers. I, you know, you don't make a rule for everything. You try to minimize your set of rules. You try to maximize your freedom. But for the places where I've been hurt before and I know that it's dangerous for me, I want to commit to being a, to making intellectual decisions and following planned and ordered eating around those, those substances. And one bite over the line is a reinforcement of the emotional addiction, the emotional and impulsive addiction. And that's where the majority of my suffering came from. 
many of the things that I thought I could never eat again, once I broke the addiction to the impulsive and emotional part, turned out if I planned it out, I could have it again. Some things, chocolate, for example, I eventually decided I just couldn't have it all. You know, I, I could, I, sugar, I can't really have it all. Flour, I'm okay with if I plan it out. I don't do that that often because I don't like the way it makes me feel, but um, I can do that if I want to. You know, for a while, I was a complete raw food vegan, and I can go back and forth if I want to, as long as I plan things out and have some cooked food or, you know, go on a date and have a, have a steamed vegetables or something. It's, it's not a problem, as long as I plan it out. Anyway, so what the logic looks like is it's incorrect that it's going to be one or two squares. It's incorrect that it's going to be just as easy to start tomorrow and no damage is going to be done. If I, if I have the craving and I indulge it today, I'm going to have a harder time tomorrow. When you're in a hole, you should stop digging. That's what that looks like. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Okay, that was insanely helpful. I'm an insanely helpful guy. I know, I know. <laughs> this is incredible. Okay, so specific questions from listeners. So 
one of the things that you talk about in at least in 45 binge trigger busters, maybe it was a never binge again as well. And you mentioned it already, I think in this interview that, you know, we often attach emotions to different types of foods. And you've, you, you've said that you did find that certain, certain types of foods tended to be attached to certain emotions, but that said that, you know, the emotional piece isn't necessarily the key to overcoming that. That said, specific foods. So when I asked the question in my Facebook group, the answer I got the most was sugar and sweets. So I'm just going to run through some of the the people and what they said so they can hear themselves. So I asked people what they struggled with surrounding all of this. And Susan, Angie, and Kent and CJ all said sweets and sugar. CJ said sugar for him equaled dopamine, equaled comfort. Marnie said sugar cravings, especially with the holidays coming. Christina said sugar again because of the dopamine. And she says when she's distressed with things happening in her relationship, it's like it sedates her and she doesn't care as much. Janelle says she always wants to finish a meal with something sweet. Charlotte says once she has something sweet, she can't stop and she wants more. Julie says sweets and chocolates. They're literally the one thing stopping her from reaching her weight loss and health goals. If she could cut them out, she would be losing weight and feeling so much better for sure. Jesse says sweets and desserts, especially on the weekends that she can't stick to a small treat. Kristen says sugar. Lindsay says sugar. Carrie says sugar. Carrie also said, we already touched on this one. She says if she has one bite, she can't stop till it's gone. If willpower can keep her from that first bite, then it can sit in front of her all day. Katie said something similar that she has sugar cravings in the evenings. And when she gives in, it's an avalanche. And then this one I thought was really interesting. Stephanie said natural sugars, super sweet grapes, apples, etc. She says, going by 80-10-10 mentality, fruit should be eaten alone, but I feel like it makes me sugar crazy. So there was even more than that, but basically sugar and sweets. And is there something unique to that? How can we deal with that with the pig? I can answer the second question more easily than I can answer the first one. The research we had on specific foods and specific emotions, the closest we got to understanding the emotional component of sugar addiction would be the emotional component of chocolate addiction, which was that people who struggle with chocolate tended to be lonely or depressed or brokenhearted. People who struggled with stress at work tended to gravitate towards chips and crunchy salty things and people that struggle with stress at home they tended to gravitate towards pastas and breads and chewy starchy things what i can tell you about overcoming sugar addiction is that you need to be very very clear about your definition and the role that you want sugar to play in your life it's true that for many people none is a lot easier than some for a lot of people i remember this one client that said The way I'm going to prevent myself from having a lot of cookies is by not having one, not even one bite. And for a lot of people, it's like that. I find that for two out of three people, the approach I'm going to describe in a moment works perfectly well. Most people have not been descript enough about what sugar actually is, and they have not been descript enough about what role they want it to play in their life. I wish that there was some diagnostic test that would tell me the one of the one out of the three people is that can't do it because you could save a lot of pain by just recognizing and coming to terms with the fact that sugar is not for you if if you're one of those people 
but I don't know how to tell that. And so it's up to you if you want to take the risk of trying to moderate it with a very specific and descript way of going about things. So the first thing is, what is sugar? And at first, when I worked with the first few dozen clients, we went through all types of definitions and you know maybe it's anything where a sweetener is above the fifth position on the label or you know maybe maple syrup is okay and white sugar is not okay maybe it's okay when i have sweeteners in my coffee what about artificial sweeteners and what i came up with as a solution which works really well is to define the sweet taste that you will have versus the sweet taste that you won't have because there are so many different forms of sugar in so many places that it hides that it's almost impossible to get them all out and the pig will wiggle around it unless you define it inclusively rather than exclusively. What that looks like for me, for example, is I've got a rule that says the only sweet taste that I'll ever eat again are whole fruit and berries. Whole fruit and berries. I get my, that's where I get my sweet taste from. Other people will say whole fruit berries and you know, artificial sweeteners in my coffee. Some people will say, you know, maple syrup is okay. But you, the point is you make a very specific list and then you could list exceptions if you want to. Some, so some people might say, speaking of the holidays, except for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's when I may have one serving at, of dessert at a restaurant or a holiday dinner, any serving, any dessert that I want. So it's very, very specific. It's, there's a beginning and an end. You know exactly when they're allowed to do it and when they're not. And I find that two out of three people can do that where they couldn't do it before. Then there's that one out of three people who really can't. So that's my best advice for dealing with sugar. The other advice I want to give you about sugar is that while artificial sweeteners are shown to lower your calories at a given meal when you have the artificial sweeteners there, the research on what it does to your caloric intake over the course of the day suggests that it increases your caloric intake by about 22%. And so artificial sweeteners are faking you out. So I, are these people here that we could talk to someone in real time? Because that would be the best way for me to help someone. They are not. I'm sorry. It's very individual. The, the reasons that people crave sugar are... I want to tell you one more thing, though. People believe that they're using it to sedate themselves. And it's true and it's not true. When you overload your digestive system in your bloodstream with excess nutrition, toxins, and excess nutritional tasks for digestion. Your body diverts some of the energy from your nervous system so it can't conduct the emotions in the same way. So as a consequence, there is an anesthetic effect of overeating or sugar in particular on the emotions. There's a high that lasts for between 18 and 32 minutes and then you crash. But... Have you ever been to the dentist? People say they eat to numb out. And I'm usually asking me, have you ever been to the dentist? And they say, you know, Melanie, I'm really sorry, but I'm out of Novocaine. I'm just going to inject you with some sugar instead. And the answer to that is no. <laughs> that's, that's never happened. And the reason that doesn't happen is because people are eating sugar for more than just the numbing effect. They're eating it to get high. They're having an unnatural concentration of glucose that doesn't exist in nature. And it provides a 
high in much the same way that a drug provides a high. It's, it's like a legal drug. And the reason that you want to change your paradigm and embrace the part of the problem that says I'm doing this to get high with food is because you probably don't want to be a drug addict. When you say, I'm eating this to sedate myself, I'm eating this for comfort, it's like your pig is saying, oh, we're hurting so much and life is so hard and we're so miserable that we really need something. And at least there's this one good thing, at least there's sugar. And you're much more likely to give in to the pig if you think that you're eating for comfort. I actually have more things to tell you. Can I keep talking about this because it's kind of important? No, of course again. Sure. This ties into the whole mythology around emotional eating where people think that the emotions are causing the binge. But did you know that it's entirely possible that the binge could be causing the emotions? So let me articulate that better. If you take, there's a whole bunch of animal studies like this. So let's look at research on baboons. Let me give you a little background. Emotions have physiological correlates. So when you're anxious, for example, your blood pressure goes up a bit, your respiration goes up, Sometimes you perspire, your heart rate goes up. There are things we can measure that are the correlates of emotions. Then we put a label on them internally, and that affects how we feel about it. But there's a definite physiological experience associated with an emotion. Now, using the principles of the very well-established principles of operant conditioning, and I'm talking about thousands of studies, you can take a pair of baboons, for example, and monitor their respiration and their, their heart rate and their blood pressure. And every time it goes up, I think they did this with blood pressure and baboons in particular, you can give them some sugar water or you know, some type of highly palatable treat, equivalent of junk food in our society. And when you do that, do you want to guess what happens with the baboons? I'm guessing way worse. Their overall blood pressure the overall sustained blood pressure goes up. So the highly palatable treat administered after the experience of the emotion, like we think it's the emotion, we have, couldn't really ask them, it reinforced that emotion and made it more likely that they're going to sustain it. People think that they run to food for comfort when they're anxious and they can't sleep, for example. But could it be that running to food for comfort is the thing that's causing the anxiety in the first place, and you're just caught up in a horrific pattern. I'm not saying this is all that matters, and you know, I still am a depth psychologist, and I do believe in the emotional roots of anxiety, and I do like people to talk about their history and everything like that, but this is a component of the puzzle that people don't really understand, that, that the emotions don't cause the binge. The binge is more likely to cause the, the emotions. So there's that. And then the last thing I want to tell you about emotional eating is that if you think of emotions as a fire, you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, and that becomes an asset, not a liability. That is some place where people will gather around, and they'll hug, and they'll cry, and they'll tell stories, and they'll laugh, and they'll make memories and form connections. It becomes the center of hearth and home. But if you have even one hole in the fireplace that an ash can get out of, it could burn down the house. Well, it turns out that it's easier to repair the fireplace than it is to put out the fire. And it's the pig that's busy poking holes in the fireplace. 
And I got better so much quicker once I decided to focus on the fireplace rather than the fire itself. When you have a well-contained fireplace, it becomes safe to study the fire. If you have a well-contained fireplace, then you can be present with your emotions. You'll have the memories that they're associated with. Then you can do the therapeutic work to work your way through the emotions. If you don't have a well-contained fireplace, there's an argument to be made that it's not safe to be digging into the fire and stoking it and looking at it so carefully. So people, I think they have the card before the horse. And the other problem with it is that emotions are very complex and they've got very complex ideologies and, you know, histories. And, and so you could be led into a labyrinth of emotional depth that's very interesting and soulful. And you could spend 30 years like me on your analyst couch while you binge your face off. So, so change the behavior. There are very practical things you can do to change the behavior. And you might find that the anxiety is not as bad as you thought it was. You might find that the stress is not as bad as you thought it was. Do you know there is a longitudinal study on 30,000 people that found that it was not the level of stress that caused excess deaths and disabilities, but it was the belief that the stress could cause excess deaths and disabilities, that the stress was harmful to your health, that caused the problem. I believe it. Yeah. Behavior first, emotion second. That's, that's the impact of this lesson. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the most powerful and at least for me impactful takeaways from all of your work is what you just said, that idea that, that you don't have to get to the bottom of, you know, if there is even an emotional root. You don't have to solve that mystery before you change the behavior. It's incredibly powerful. And and also understanding doesn't always solve the problem. Right. Okay. You know, I I know that I ran to chocolate because my mom was not available when she was younger and she was anxious and depressed herself. And I know that I had a pattern of not really finding love in my life because I, you know, I had that misconnection with my mom and I've been working on that my whole life. But you know, I'm still single, right? And I don't, I don't have the love of my life, but I don't have to binge because of that. So the fact that I understand that, and I could quote you chapter and verse of how it was set up in my life, that didn't solve the problem. It just made me understand it. And the same way that an x-ray helps you understand where your bone is broken, there's something you have to do to fix the broken bone, not just understand that it's broken. This is a really quick tangent. I recently had James Nestor on the podcast and he, he wrote a book called Breath. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I heard that was a great book. It's amazing. Oh, it's so, it's like one of the most, right there, right up there would never binge again for like life-changing books. But in any case, one of the most like mind-blowing studies in that book was long story short, but carbon dioxide can spike like panic in our brain. So they do like CO2 therapy to address phobias. And when you get it done, you have completely adequate oxygen. Like you can breathe, but because of the amount of CO2 that you have, you you feel like you can't breathe. And so it, it creates like utter panic. It's kind of like exposure therapy. But like in that situation, like you have oxygen, even though you know that in your prefrontal cortex, you're not going to be able to talk yourself into feeling like you can breathe. Like just not going to be able to, that was a tangent, but basically like, even if you know the reason or the reality doesn't change what you're experiencing or the struggle. You're still going to go through that and you have to be able to tell yourself that feelings aren't facts. 
Yeah, exactly. So you answered some questions that we had about emotional eating because Angie wanted to know about emotional eating. Casey says she struggles with emotional binging. She says after a long, hard week, she feels like nothing can make her feel better other than food sometimes. Robin said definitely emotional eating. It doesn't matter what type of emotion it is. And then Amber says kind of what you just spoke to. She says, I feel like I need a counselor instead of another diet hack to get me to stop binging. There's got to be some root problem that I'm attempting to bury and have built lifelong habits around that attempt. I wish it were as easy as just talking to the pig. I've allowed food to have a lot of power in my life. So you just talked all about this, but the primary reframe is just implement the pig routine and work on the emotions. Life isn't a pain-free experience, you know? And at some point, we all have to tell our pigs that we're willing to experience whatever emotional discomfort we need to in order to change our behavior. And that might mean having psychotherapeutic support while you go through it. I don't want to be, like, I don't want to be insensitive to the pain that people go through. I mean, I mean from 2016 to 2018, I got divorced, moved six times lost my dog, lost my mom, went across the country by myself and had a business take off, which was actually kind of like riding a bucking bronco. It was really stressful. I went through all sorts of emotions, but because I'd gone through really hard times before, like in 2001, I was caught up in a business in 9-11 and I went $700,000 in debt, which was a fortune for me. And I felt like I was going to be in debt for years after that. And at that time, I felt like I couldn't deal with it without binging. And I wound up fat, sick, and broke. And I told myself this time, no matter how hard life got, I wouldn't mind being broke, but I'm not going to end up fat and sick also. I could have just been broke. And thankfully, I didn't wind up going broke. But, you know, I mean, there were days I just wanted to sit in the closet and cry. But I didn't have a box of Oreos with me, you know? <laughs> so... Because I told my pig, I said, I'm sorry, but life isn't a pain-free experience and we're going to go through this without that box of Oreos. I'm sorry. I'm willing to be uncomfortable to get through this. And I saw it, you know, I talked to a therapist and I reached out to my friends and I, I was aware that I was going through something and that I really had to actively seek support. But life isn't a pain-free experience. And if you have six problems and then you binge you will have seven problems. It's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> so simple, but so true. I've actually since revised it to if you have six problems and then you binge, you're going to have 42 problems because binging is a problem multiplier, not a problem matter. Yeah, that's good too. I like it. I'm so happy because like I have written down all these wonderful, amazing takeaways from the book and then you, you say them and I'm like, yes, <laughs> he said them. So we talked about the sweets. Also, a lot of people struggle with the salty side of things. So for example, Gwen says salty foods with the worst time being the evening after dinner. Brittany says potato chips. Sean says constantly craving the salty snack, particularly after a beer or three. Michelle says she agrees. Salty snacks, tortilla chips are her weakness. I like what she says. She says, if I don't buy them, I'm good. But if I buy them, I'm weak and will eat them. So I, so if I know this, why do I buy them? Robin also says salty. Debbie says chips, anything salty. So is it a similar, because you talked about with sugar, kind of like understanding how, like what role sugar is going to play in your life. Does that apply to salt? <laughs> it's the same approach. I've had several nutritionists 
and doctors tell me that that might have to do with a mineral craving. And personally, I find that I crave salt much less when I watch my electrolytes and I'm eating enough leafy green vegetables. If I don't have a pound or two of leafy green vegetables each day, then I do get salt cravings. I, I don't indulge them, but I get them. What we find when people are eating overeating crunchy salty chips is that it's usually in the evening. And this is just a pattern that we observed. We, you know, we surveyed several hundred people that were struggling. And we observed that when they'd overcome their struggles, they wound up adding more crunchy things into their diet during the day, particularly at lunch. So we came up with a mantra, add some crunch to your lunch. So celery, carrots, cabbage, other cruciferous vegetables, but raw, not, not cooked. Not that there's any problem with them cooked, but you know, they would have them raw. And my hypothesis is that there's a, there's a certain amount of frustration, aggression that we get out by crunching during the day. We're, we're designed to chew stuff. And when people are adding crunch to their lunch, then that, that frustration, aggression doesn't build up all day. A lot of these people who are struggling with the salty, crunchy things at night, a lot of them are mothers that have many kids. <laughs> They've got a whole bunch of kids, and what happens is all of a sudden they're alone when everybody's gone up to bed or anything, and that's their, that's their time to get out the popcorn or the potato chips and you know, go to town with that. So you can make a dent in that by trying to take an additional two five-minute breaks during the day where you are entirely free of stimulus input. And most, most specifically, you're entirely free of the need to make decisions. Even if you have to go run to the bathroom and lock the door, just five minutes twice a day when nobody is screaming, mommy, who's taking me to soccer practice? Honey, where's my shirt? What's for dinner? You know, when your boss isn't telling you to take care of this email and that email, just five minutes twice a day, nothing impinging upon your decision-making ability can take the edge off of that. And then you add some crunch to your lunch. If you are eating them at night, if you're overdoing it at night, then the odds are pretty good that you're not having breakfast. And I'm aware that I'm speaking to an intermittent fasting group. So if you need to break the habit, it might be good to have breakfast for a little while. And I totally support Millie and everything she teaches you. But to to break the habit, if you really need... Look, it's probably better if you don't have two bags of potato chips at night. If you were... If you got back to intermittent fasting in a couple of months, Melanie, will you forgive me if I say that? <laughs> I want to say, please say everything that you would say. The purpose of this show is to bring on all perspectives and all viewpoints. And I don't think I'm right about anything. All I know is I know nothing. So I welcome, I welcome everything that you would say, regardless of the audience. Well, I, I don't dispute the medical benefits of intermittent fasting at all. And you know, as a matter of fact, I might go for a supervised intermittent fast myself. But as people are breaking the habit of binge eating, not forever, but as they're breaking the habit, it can be really helpful, particularly for nighttime eaters who are crunching at night to eat some breakfast. That can really help. We actually got questions about that. Irene said time triggers after her daughter goes to bed, after her husband goes to bed. It almost always happens at night. Jenna Beth said the behavior of nighttime overeating, please. And then we also have like people who wake up 
like in the middle of the night, like Stephanie was saying, middle of the night eating. Meredith says, why does this usually happen when I've woken up in the middle of the night and standing in front of the fridge like a half asleep zombie, not even knowing how much I'm shoveling into my mouth as if there's some disassociation with it? Got it. And my mother used to say she'd wake up with Oreo cookies on her pillows and she didn't know what happened. So we wrote a whole book about nighttime eating. It's called An End to Nighttime Overeating. And in addition to the changes in the dietary pattern of eating breakfast and crunching at your lunch, and the last dietary change would be to spend a little more time trying to make your regular meals taste better and be more enjoyable. Sometimes that meant putting you know, things that were relatively healthy but added flavor like spices or sun-dried tomatoes or something like that. But like having a little bit more enjoyment of food during the day, that, that seemed to help. But there were a variety of psychological things that people did, psychological routines people engaged in to overcome nighttime overeating. One of them involved creating clearly delineated lines and, and rituals. So think of the vampire movies. And by the way, we call the pig, when it comes out at night, pigula. And it whispers more than squeals. It has seductive whispers. In the vampire movies, the first thing you notice is that the main characters and the heroes, they know the difference between daylight and dark. And the directors want to make sure that we know that because there is different music that plays at night versus during the day. There are other signs of danger. The furniture and other obstacles and other things in the scenes are usually more ominous and scary and People are, the characters are making preparations for the nighttime to come on. You know, what we know now, we, I had someone research vampires for me a long time ago, and we know that vampires are largely a projection of people's aggression and fear from, you know, things that were happening in the, in the earlier part of the millennium, of last millennium. And we understand that rituals, they bind fear by kind of flexing the upper brain against the lower brain. And so when the hero in the vampire movie is making a circle of salt around the house, they're, what they're really doing is priming their upper brain to recognize that the impulses will be upon them soon and that they're going to have to deal with them and it's kind of a magical belief, but nonetheless, it does take them out of their lower brain and into their upper brain. And so it, it tends to work. And so they know exactly when the sun is going down and they have a ritual to demarcate the transition from daytime to nighttime. What that looks like for nighttime readers is that you need to know what Maybe it's a particular time on the clock. It's usually not exactly when the sun goes down because it goes down at different times and different time zones and different latitudes and everything. But you need to know when the sun goes down. When is it time to stop eating? And you need some type of ritual to demarcate that. One of the women that works for me, she claps her hands and she goes, dinner and done. As soon as the dishes are in the dishwasher, I'm mixing two of them up. One of them claps her hands three times and says, kitchen's closed, 
And the other one kind of slams the dishwasher and says, dinner and done. And that's equivalent to pouring salt around the house and putting up silver crosses to you know, keep Pigula away. So they have this ritual. And then there is a different set of activities that occurs in the evening when they're preparing to rest in the absence of being disturbed by these impulses or being disturbed by the vampires. So what that looks like is that some people will change their clothes. Some people will move to another room of the house. Some people will make a set of exceptions of things that they can have, like, you know, warm, warm tea with a cinnamon stick and a little almond milk. No sweeteners. Some people do that at night. Some people have diet jello. I'm not saying any of these things are good or bad for you. I'm just saying that there's a very specific list of things you can have while you're decompressing. And then there's a decompression routine. Maybe there's a shower or doing your skin moisturizing or skincare routines, brushing your teeth, changing clothes. What do you do to transition into the evening away from the food consumption and into your preparation to let go of the day and, you know, and slip into the night and slip into the night. And then they move to the bed and these people typically don't use their bed for anything besides sleeping and sex, but they're, they're definitely not eating in bed. They're definitely never eating in bed. And they're trying not to even watch TV in bed. They're just trying to make a bed, a place for resting and, and intimacy. And, you know, so if you can think to yourself, what ritual would I like to install? How am I going to decompress? What are the allowed things I can do when I decompress? What's not allowed? And what am I, what's the ritual I'm going to use when I actually go to bed and, you know, get the stimulation out of the bed and, and prepare, for, prepare for sleep? And then you make those other changes we talked about, like having a little breakfast, adding crunch to your lunch, making sure you're enjoying the food throughout the day. That protocol represents the conglomerate of things that people who successfully overcame nighttime overeating are doing. The one problem I have to say we haven't solved, solved yet is the what you're describing is called nighttime eating syndrome, where you wake up in front of a refrigerator and you're kind of sleep eating. I can't say I have a reliable solution for that yet. What The few people that I've worked with that do solve that, they'll tape something to the refrigerator door that's different every night in hopes that they'll wake up. Or they will, sometimes they'll lock the cabinet. Sometimes they will, you know, put some, what did that lady do? Paint? She had some paint that exploded on her. I forget exactly what it is. But you've got to put something that interrupts the unconscious pattern in place. And it doesn't always work. So I'm, I'm still working on that one. I'm sorry. That's the one thing that we don't really have. Nighttime overeating was a really serious problem. It took us a couple of years to figure that out. And this is the one last remaining part of anybody has done anything that really works for that, then please write to us and let us know. Okay. That was ridiculously helpful. The whole ritual thing is absolutely amazing. And I love the whole, the whole history behind that and how that works. So I think my listeners, especially cause I think a lot of my listeners, like I said, follow intermittent fasting protocols and they might be eating at night. And so it might be harder for them to, you know, get off that train so I think that will be very valuable. And for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to an end to nighttime overeating. I was fascinated by the people who have that condition where they, you know, eat at night and don't even realize it. And then I met somebody who had it. It just blew my mind. I was like, 
I was really grateful I don't have that because that would be a monster to tackle. Yeah. Also sort of in the same realm, secret eating. Christy says, I feel like an alcoholic only with food. On occasions I binge without regard, normally in silence and hidden. What about people who find that they like secretly eat? You can make a rule that says that you will never eat alone again. That's a little drastic. You can do that. You can you can make another one that's a little softer that says, I will only ever eat in plain sight again. So even if someone is not watching you, you know, you're sitting right in the living room where people can see you when they walk in and you're not allowed to jump up and hide the food when they, when they come in. So the first thing to do is create a behavioral rule that delineates the behavior and then you can work on once you do that, you'll become more aware of what the pig is squealing to say that you have to eat in secret. Usually that will be something like, you know, you don't really deserve this and you don't, you don't deserve to be neutrified. You don't deserve this time for yourself. You're really pathetic and awful and shameful and you can only do this by yourself. So you can start to dispute those things. Everything that... I find sneak eaters tend to have in common is that they can't love themselves before they arrive. So they have this idea that their life is going to start when they get to a certain weight, when they get close to their goal weight, or at least when they get you know, into a certain range that they consider acceptable. And they're just constantly shaming themselves and criticizing themselves until that point, not realizing that the constant self-castigation is making them feel too weak to resist the next binge in the first place. And so you kind of have to give that up. Like These are the people who, I always thought the mirror work where you say, I, you know, I, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people love me, or you know, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you. I always thought that was kind of hokey, but these are the kind of people that could use that. These are the kind of people that have to actively and purposely find things to love about themselves along the way. It would help to keep a, a non-scale victory journal. You know, as you're, as you're getting the binging out of your life, what's getting better in, in your life other than your weight? So maybe your digestion feels better. Maybe you feel more present with your kids. Maybe your skin looks a little bit better. Maybe your knee hurts a little bit less. Maybe you're finding yourself a little more emotionally present for your relationship. Maybe you caught yourself dancing the other day. If you keep a non-scale victory journal on a day-by-day basis and really focus on being in the present moment and loving life before you arrive, as hard as that sounds, that's what I find helps sneak eaters. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted 
exceeded by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. 
Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF, and what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment, and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you, and like I said, that will be up to $200 off, and that will also get you you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Super random, vulnerable moment from, from me. I just find it interesting that you bring up the mirror work because out of all of the like modalities and tools for like working on my personal perspective and mindset and self-love and all of that, the one tool that is out there that I struggle with the most to do, like it's just hard for me to do is mirror work. Like everything else I can... Like, I'm like, bring it on. But mirror work, like, wrecks me <laughs> to the bone. How, how come? How come? Something, I, I don't know, something about, like, seeing yourself. I, I just find it, I guess it's just so much in your face. Like, no pun intended. Like, it, it's, like, literally, like, looking at yourself and... Can't escape. Yeah, compared to just working through different techniques, like not seeing yourself. I don't know. Um, that was a, t- a tangent. It's hard. I, I find it hard also, but it's helped me. Yeah. I think it's probably pretty powerful. So the flip side of secret eating, social eating, 
We have Ka Ra says overeating and overeating during an event or gathering. Danielle says social eating and drinking. I do just great when I'm in my own controlled environment, but I attend many social events where there is always food and drinks. No matter how controlled I am at home, I find that when I'm in front of food that I would never ever keep or eat at home, I will go all in at a cocktail party, dinner, or soiree. Inevitably, I leave filled with regret and often with stomach issues. I'm very social, and these interactions are very important for both my work and personal life. So as much as I look forward to them, I dread them, and sometimes I don't attend them as I worry I won't be able to control my impulses in the moment. She also says when all social events literally revolve around food and alcohol, I end up eating more because I'm drinking. And we got a lot of questions about drinking. So yeah, social events. And then also they didn't mention this so much. One of my questions is like the social pressure, like people being like, oh, you can just have one bite or why aren't you eating or why, you know, so society. I have a whole lecture on this, so I'm going to have to condense it. Okay. First of all, there is a tendency for binge eaters to start to shrink from life because they fear the stimulation. And that's something we really want to work on. We don't want to allow your life to become smaller and smaller and smaller. We want to be able to seize the day and aggressively walk through life confident that we know how to deal with this. So everything about Never Binge Again is about doing that. Okay. But there's a lot more in a social interaction that creates pressure to eat like everybody else is eating than meets the eye. Yes, people don't want to feel guilty for what they're eating. Yes, you know, they want permission to indulge. They want, they like to have some company for it. But there's a lot more than that going on. So let me take you back to the basics of group psychology, which talk about the distinction between an aggregate and a group. An aggregate is what you see when you walk into an elevator and there's a half a dozen people there. And even before COVID, people would position themselves equidistant from one another. How much space can I make from everybody in the elevator? And people look down after they push the button and they typically don't talk to each other. Maybe they look up and they look at, they look at the uh-huh. floor number. They're... Hands aren't touching, their, their shoulders aren't touching, they're not facing each other. It's a very sterile group experience without interaction. And there's certainly no norms for behaviors or union or bonding within the group. But then let's make the assumption that the elevator breaks down and two hours later the repairmen finally arrive and they open the doors and you see you know, one person is taking a nap on the other person's shoulder and a couple of other guys are playing cards and they loosen their ties and they're, they're laughing and, you know, another one is telling a joke and they've come up with rules and norms for what do you do when you have to go to the bathroom? How many times can we push the emergency call button before everybody else gets annoyed? They went through an experience where they had to survive together as a tribe So they went from being a bunch of strangers who happened to share the same location to relying on each other in some way and having to define 
norms and behaviors that are okay and norms and behaviors that are not okay. This is how we relate to each other in this tribe. Now, this quality of a group, it comes and goes to some extent, depending upon how much time you spend with the group. So even with your family, if you have not seen them and you're going to go see them on Thanksgiving and you haven't seen them for a month, six months, or six years, there's not the immediate cohesion of the group rules and norms that allows the tribe to function together as an effective unit. And you know, now functioning together as an effective unit just means getting for dinner together, but 2,000 years ago it probably meant survival because there were very scarce resources, and if everybody didn't eat the same thing, someone could get sick, and we needed the labor of every person in the tribe, and so you'd really be being a burden on everybody else. So what happens is when you're not together for a while, the tribe or the family becomes a little more aggregate-like or a lot more aggregate-like, and there is some anxiety as people come back together about whether you're really still a family. I mean, no one would say this consciously, but it exists at, a, at an unconscious level. And I, I think it exists at an evolutionary level also. I think this is hardwired and that there is a set of psychological forces at play that we perceive to be necessary for survival when a group comes together. And you can also think about when two groups come together and they have to break bread to show that they're no longer at war and that one group is not there to reap and pillage, that there is an ally. You know, civilization is a pretty recent thing. The way that we behave together is pretty recent. And there, there's still a lot of very primitive fears in our DNA. So now let's look at the situation where I go back to my family for Thanksgiving. And this is when my mom was still alive. And she comes running up to me. She says, oh, hi, honey. I love you. I made you this chocolate chip mint pie using your favorite chocolate chips. Oh, I, I saved this special piece for you. Here you go, honey. Why don't you have some right now? Just a little bite, a little bite more. What is mom doing there? Well, on the surface, she is feeding me. She's wanting to, she wanted to be appreciated for, you know, making me the things she used to make me. She's using food as love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What she's really doing, though, the deeper need is to reestablish the groupness of the tribe. She's trying to welcome me back to the tribe with love. She's presenting me with a love gift. Now, what most people get caught up with in that situation is that they attempt to engage in an intellectual argument to explain why it's important that they don't have the chocolate. Well, mom, you know my triglycerides are really high. I'm not supposed to do that. Well, the problem with that is that it makes mom feel like I've rejected her love gift. On an unconscious level, it probably frightens her that, you know, the tribe is not going to appear the way it's supposed to. And it also makes her feel guilty for making the pie in the first place and for eating it. Like, is she poisoning other people, giving them this unhealthy stuff? So you should almost never, until you're totally over binge eating, uh, almost never take that opportunity to give people a health lesson and explain why, it's not really good for them to have that and you can't have it anymore. What you really want to do is teach mom an alternative way to love you back into the tribe. So you say, oh, mom, you know what? I ate a little too much at lunch. My stomach's a little upset. Do you have any mint tea, for example, or 
Mom, I'm a little cold. Do you happen, happen to have a sweater? Or even something like, Mom, I just have to know what happened in the Yankee game. Do you know the score? Can we go talk to Michael or can we put it on the TV? Give her something that she can do to love you back into the tribe. Sidestep the argument entirely. Sidestep the conversation entirely. Present her with an alternative way to love you and everything will be fine. And then you change the topic. And I promise you, it's not going to be an issue. With, with all but the most pernicious mothers, it's, it's not going to be an issue. And if you can handle your mom, you can handle anybody else with food. <laughs> That's what we find in, I grew up in a Jewish culture, but most ethnic cultures where food is a big deal, you learn how to handle your mom, you're doing fine. So there's that social pressure. Now there's, there's one more thing you can do. If you think of your everyday rules as the bullseye that you're aiming for on the archery target, there is also a second and third rung. And you could create a second rung of conditional rules that say, you know, I can have one main meal and one dessert of my choosing on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, right? I'm just making that up. You can delineate it however you want to. But the point is that the second rung of the bullseye begins and ends somewhere. You know exactly what it is, so your decisions will be made. Most people, two out of three, are able to do that, and they get through holidays and social events like that. Some people will say, you know, I will never eat flour again except for two pieces of bread in a restaurant once per calendar week. Other people will say, I never have sugar except for, you know, one dessert at my sister's house on you know, Saturday, but no more than twice a month. Very, very clear boundaries of what the exceptions are. At your own risk, but, you know, more often than not, it works. So between managing the psychology with an alternative love gift and then aiming for the second rung of the bullseye if you want to, most people are able to navigate social situations much better than they did before we explained all that to them. So how's that for a long-winded answer? That was one of the most mind-blowing things I've heard in a long time. That was so incredible. Oh, thank you, dear. Oh, my goodness alternative love gift. I'm going to start implementing that. My mom has gotten a lot better. Like she used to do this a ton and she doesn't really anymore, but wow, this is like mind blowing and understanding why it works. I'm going to talk about this on the next intermittent fasting podcast really quickly. What about the alcohol? I consistently hear from women that when they have more than two drinks in a day, that all the rules go out the window. And I consistently hear from men that when they have more than three drinks during the day, they, all the rules go out the window. So, you know, alcohol inhibits your frontal lobe, which is where your decision-making and willpower is. So I don't have a solution that'll let you get drunk and stay to your rules. I'm sorry. <laughs> People break the rules when they get drunk. So the solution, if you're really worried about it, is to not get drunk. Yeah. Like know yourself. Your tolerance. Yeah. Like figure out what drinking leads to not being able to maintain or hold to the, the plan compared to, you know, cause I think some people might be all or none, but some people might be able to find that, that amount and then being really strict about it really quickly. What about self-sabotage? Monica said, I sabotage myself whenever I get at a certain weight or justify that I can binge eat because I lost so much already. And Angie says, it would be nice to get tips on how to not sabotage myself every time I'm doing well and eating well. It's like something snaps in my brain and I binge. Yeah. I'm not sure that the psychological interpretation of self-sabotage is accurate there. I think there's something physical going on. 
I mean, there are reasons that people self-sabotage themselves, but I, I don't think that that situation is one of them. Here's why. What people typically do is they get onto a weight loss plan and they zoom down to their goal. And it's almost like they crash headlong into the goal. Think about when we send a rovers to, when we send a, a rocket to the moon and we land on the moon. Before we get to the moon, we have to decelerate. You've got to fire the thrusters in reverse so that you slowly touch down. Um, otherwise, you crash. What most people do is they say, okay, I'm going to lose two pounds a week, or some people try to lose four pounds a week until I get to my goal weight, and then I'm going to go back to a maintenance diet. Let's go back to the discussion we had about an evolutionary mechanism that probably says, if calories and nutrition are scarce in this environment, then as soon as they're available, I better hoard them. I think that's what's happening when people switch from weight loss to maintenance. I think that because they're crashing into it or they're not decelerating beforehand and softly touching down, that they're triggering that mechanism in their brain that says it's time to hoard calories. I've had some success with people who have done that before. Like, for example, if they're losing two pounds a week, when they get to 10 pounds away from their goal, we switch that to one pound a week. When they're five pounds away from the goal, we switch to a half pound. When they're you know, two pounds away, we switch to a quarter pound. And then switching from your weight loss food plan to a maintenance food plan becomes more like slowly turning on a rheostat and you know, gradually watching the light come on than all of a sudden flicking a light switch. And that way you don't trigger that feast and famine response. And I, I think that's 70% of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the pig says that your health is like a great big garbage can. And as soon as it's empty, it's time to fill it up with more slop. And that's not really true. Your, you know, the, your body is the most sacred thing you'll ever own. And so you can try to remind yourself of that. You can look for what else your pig is specifically saying to get you to go your diet. But the best part of the solution I've seen is more of a physical one where people, they, they preempt that feast and famine response. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, maybe this is the same thing, but they feel like they deserve it. Like, oh, I've, I've done so good. I haven't binged or I haven't, you know, broken my plan this amount of days. So like, I deserve this. So maybe, I don't know if that's more emotional or. Well, yeah. And, and so you could plan out very specifically what you deserve and what the limits of that are going to be. And, and if you can, you can combine that planned treat or a couple of days of treats or whatever it is, you combine that with a deceleration towards the goal, then I don't think you have the problem. There's so many more things, but I want to be super respectful of your time. What about people who, and you talk about this at the very end of 45 binge trigger busters, people who just say it, it doesn't work or they just feel like they can't get a grasp on the pig. And for example, like Angela says, saying no to the pig is a simple concept, but not always easy to do. That dumb pig still gets control over me a lot of times. And then Amber agreed with her. And then Carolyn says, this is perfect timing. I really need help with the binging. His book has definitely helped me, but sometimes I still listen to the pig. So what about people who just feel like they can't? Yeah. First of all, that's a, tip, that's a very typical course through Never Binge Again, where people get the concepts and it helps them. I mean, some people just get it and they stop binging and that's that. That's the minority people. 
Some people will get it for something very specific that they can cut out of their life, like popcorn. Whereas eating three meals a day with nothing in between is a lot harder. In every case, when you're installing a new habit, you're having to insert yourself between stimulus and response. And all the tools that we've given you in Never Binge Again are very practical tools for doing that. But I can't take away your free will. And I wouldn't if I could. It's not a, like a gastric bypass or something that makes you not want to binge. It's something that makes you aware of the space between stimulus and response. And what you need to do if you want to fix this, if you want to recover, is you you have to eliminate the words I can't or I don't know from your vocabulary. And know that you're in good company. Call them conscious pig parties where people just don't have the energy or the inclination to, you know, go through the exercises and put themselves in the middle and, you know, they get a case of the efforts and they just, you know, they just go to town. What you need to do is reconstruct those moments where it happened. You can analyze it post-mortem and say, if there were more of a justification, if there were more of a voice of destructive justification between the stimulus and response, between the thing that I saw and the thing that I ate, the thing that I thought about and the thing that I ate, if there, if there were more of a destructive justification, what would those words have been? What might the pig have said? And you can do this, do it post-mortem if you have to. And then you dispute that, you disempower that on the way that we talked about earlier. We exist in the space between stimulus and response. So this is actually about much more than just arresting binge eating. This, this is about empowering you to make choices in your life so that you're can make the pig your slave rather than you being the pig slave. And you know, what, one of you is going to take control. So change your vocabulary. Rather than asking yourself, what did the pig say? Ask yourself, what might have the pig said? Or what might the pig be saying? What occurs to me? And become committed to assigning language to that space between impulse and emotion, impulse and action, no matter how difficult that might seem at first. And over time, it's like a muscle that develops. It's like a muscle that develops. And collect evidence of success. Don't let the pig fo- focus you on how you made this mistake or that mistake and you know, learn what you can and move on and spend a lot more energy collecting the successes that you've had and the failures and you'll start to be inspired and you'll get better and better. That is so incredible. I really, really love that concept of the, the space in between. So like identifying the pig voice, I personally don't ever really struggle with identifying it for what it is. Like I'm pretty in tune with like being like, oh, this is this is not, not me. I do have friends who say that they really struggle to identify it. Like they, they find themselves, you know, having these ideas or planning to not listen to the pig, but then they find themselves, you know, in the middle of a binge or in the middle of. Melanie, sometimes that has to do with an ambiguity in the food rule that they're using. Right. So if your rule is something like I, I avoid chocolate, it's not really clear what that means. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you know, you don't. And then I say, well, is this the pig or it's not the pig? Rules need to be 100% crystal clear. Ten people should be able to follow you around all day and decide whether you were on plan or off plan. Yeah, we're so on the same page. That's where I was going with that was I was going to say that I love what you said about like the need for the crystal clear lines because then it makes it very obvious when it's not part of the plan. So thank you so much. This has been amazing. We only got to like probably not even half of the questions, 
We can do it again. I'll, I'll trade you. You have to come back on mine. Oh, I would love to. Listeners, again, the show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash binge triggers. I'll put links to everything that we discussed there. There'll be a full transcript. Get Never Binge Again. Get any of the other books that the amazing Glenn has written. They're all incredible, life-changing. I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing. I'm so honored to know you. I'm just, thank you. Melanie, I'm honored to know you too. What is something that you're grateful for? Today, I am grateful for you. How's that? Oh, thank you. I'm grateful for you too. Okay. This has been amazing. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And maybe we can talk again in a future now. Absolutely. In a future now. (laughs) Because the future is an infinite string of nows. It is. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.